Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Break free from the forces holding you back. Get the life you deserve. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, decrease depression, and start living your full potential. Thousands have used Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory, an evidence-based behavioral health breakthrough with incredible life-changing results. Getting rid of past trauma, having fulfilling relationships, increasing earnings, and living their best life. Now, the Fujian app is available to everyone. The app is Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory in the palm of your hand. Download the Fujian app today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Podcast, a heartfelt chat with my guests and you beautiful listeners and viewers. I'm Dr. Fujian Zain. I'm a psychotherapist, an author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. So great to be with all of you. Um, in this episode, I chat with Dr. David Schenk who is the former director of ethics program, Medical University of South Carolina, and was on the faculty of the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's the co-author of two previous books on ethics and healing in healthcare, Healers, Extraordinary Clinicians at Work, and What Patients Teach, Everyday Ethics of Healthcare. Dr. Shank taught philosophy and religion for 20 years and has published widely in bioethics, philosophy, and religious studies. He was founding executive director of Free Medical Clinic, a healthcare advocate for homeless, and a 25-year hospice volunteer. His co-author, Scott Neely, is a minister of Unitarian Universalist Church of Spartanburg, South Carolina. He serves as the strategist for speaking down Barriers, an organization that uses art and facilitated dialogue to build bonds across the differences that divide us. He has helped develop LGBTQ Theologies, a regional network of congregations supporting LGBTQ plus people and issues and the fund to support Latinx immigrants statewide coalition providing direct assistance to immigrants during the COVID-19 pandemic. He's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. He has taught at the University of South Carolina, Upstate, and Wooford College. Today, we're talking about their latest book, Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. We had an amazing conversation with Dr. Um, David Chink um, about suffering, about what happens to us. Uh, when we are suffering, we are, when we're a caregiver, when we are um, a person who's witnessing and have the privilege of caring for others who are suffering. I'm positive you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Please subscribe to my podcast and my YouTube channel. Connect with me through my website, fujanzain.com, or any of the social medias. Go to fujan.com or get the app Fujan. You wanted to um, experience the awareness integration of theory and therapy through the app. Um, we've received many, many people who have gotten up to 60% satisfaction with their different life areas. So I'm positive you will enjoy it. And we have good news for you on that. Share with me your thoughts, the topics you want me to talk about, guests you want me to talk about, and just connect with me. I love to connect with you and hear from you. Without further ado, here's Dr. David 
Shank. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, and decrease depression. Dr. Fujian Zane's awareness integration theory has helped thousands like you get incredible life-changing results. The Fujian app gives you her evidence-based treatment in the palm of your hand. Download today. Welcome, Dr. Shang. It is so nice to have you on our show. Great to be with you, Fujian. Um, I love to talk about your latest book, Into the Field of Suffering. Um, I've been a therapist for about 30 years, um, and I've been a human being for 62. So right. I can say <laughs> I've been in the field of suffering. You've suffered. <laughs> I've suffered and I've heard others suffer. And um, and I get this is what you uh, really wanted to talk about in this book. And um, not only about what it is that we're suffering about, but what are the ways of looking at it from a different angle? And uh, one of the angles that you actually look upon is um, caregivers, which is very important because as as I just said, not only we as a human being have that capacity to experience those but when you're sitting with other people suffering day in and out it, it really takes a toll on your body and if you don't know what to do with that um it could really really take its toll so can you first share about uh why your interest in this field of suffering my father died when i was 18 he was 43 uh, completely healthy. So we thought he had a major stroke on Saturday afternoon and was dead Sunday afternoon. Um, and so I went from lettering in football and basketball, head of my class, senior prefect, class president, college scholarship to, uh, and I adored my father. And my world just exploded and the community in which i had grown up had no resource for this i mean there were some mainstream churches but you know one priest came over and said well you know god allows times for these things to happen and you know i wanted to strangle him and throw him out the front door uh my father's friends were devastated i planned the funeral at 18, because everybody else was in zombie land. So that I turned from, you know, wanting to be Bobby Kennedy to let's figure out what suffering is about. How do I understand death? Uh, I have migraine headaches. Every time I have a headache, is it going to be the stroke that's going to kill me? Will I live past 30? Will I live past 43, which is when my father died? And so the question of death and the question of suffering just presented themselves in the strongest possible way. And so one of the things I was interested in, I studied comparative religion and philosophy. And, you know, I focused a lot on the problem of suffering and how it's understood in different traditions. And, you know, in Christian tradition, how can you have a loving God and have suffering? Or uh, the Buddha, you know, it's kind of much more straightforward everything is suffering, the house is on fire. Now what are we going to do? So that was really the the beginning uh, 
an abrupt and brutal uh, beginning, but you know, that later becomes a resource. Uh, yeah. It does, it really does. You also talk about um, not only the person, but again, because in, in the medical field and in the um, in the field of caregiving, um, they kind of um, get close together. Where, as I said, the human and the and the profession are consistently um, together. You also share about not wanting to use or uh, your approaches. Let's not ethically call this a burnout or. Um, for someone who is um, is going through it as if like the issue is simple is just that people are sensitive about this and so therefore um normal human beings can just handle this and there's some people who can't handle this um right. your approach is very different about how to handle suffering can you share a little bit about that yes so we know that there are stresses for caregivers either in the home um you know there was an article in the new york times two days ago caregivers are angry they don't know what to do they don't have the resources that they want um and we know that people giving care within institutions are stressed um in their own way the words burnout and moral distress are the good thing about them is that they say okay people are have a lot of pressure on them. This is bad. But the unfortunate use of the terms is they end up being judgmental. You know, well, David burned out, meaning he didn't have enough discipline. He wasn't determined enough. He didn't eat enough vegetables. I mean, whatever it is, you know, it's my fault. Um, moral distress. He's not tough enough to handle. This is especially applied it's misogynistic, really. I mean, it started in conversations about nurses. I think it started back further than that with the idea that women were hysterical and men weren't. And so nurses had moral distress and doctors did not. Uh, you need to go talk to so-and-so. She's enmeshed with her patients. Um, it's gradually gotten better, but not, not enough. But again, it focuses on on the failure. You know, um, we see signs of moral distress in Fujian. That means that she hasn't done X, Y, and C. The other problem is it blames the individual for institutional failures. Uh, part of what we saw during the COVID time was major failures on the part of our institutions and our politicians that then put enormous stress on individuals who then were labeled as burnt out. That is by no means personal failure, right? It, it's an institutional failure that is being focused on them. So part of what we wanted to do was to, to the degree that it's possible, change some of the language around this and say, burnout is a useful term, but let's use it for the, the terminus, the final point. So I give an example in the book of something that happened to me when I was working in a, a homeless day center. And I would count that as a burnout point. I mean, I resigned from my job and worked in a warehouse for a year to just stay away from people. But leading up to that for a period of years was what we call depletion. 
you know, the gradual sense of the energy that you have, the confidence you have, the desire to go to work gradually goes away. And that's what most people are experiencing. And you can talk about that without it being judgmental. The other term that we introduce, and it'll be interesting to see if anybody picks this up, is moral anguish. Moral distress talks mostly about what might happen to me when I'm at work. I want to do something for a patient. Doctor doesn't want me to do it. I'm a doctor. The insurance company won't let me do the thing that I know will help the patient. But what I mean by moral anguish is when you internalize that, when it comes into your body, and I know I've heard you talk about this, it comes into your body and it's very hard to let it go. And it eats you in a different way. And so I wanted a more uh, aggressive word than distress. I wanted something that captured how it gets um, how it gets inside of you. David, I remember when I um, first worked with domestic violence, where I used to hear and I um, you know opened the shelter and the transitional housing for the women who were being abused and the children who were being abused. And um, I recall when I sat um, day in and out, you know, one after another, um, and I'm a very visual person. So as people were sharing with me um, their anguish and the trauma and um, the pain that they had go through, I would literally um, vision it and then it would be all over my body. If they told me that they were hit by a brick on their head, I would actually feel the pain in my head at that moment. And um, I would, they would leave the office and I would run to the bathroom and sometimes even throw up the pain. Yeah. And physically, throw up, yeah. physically, I would have to go through that. You know, I, for three years, I used to work with Los Angeles hospitals at the uh, crisis uh, suicide. And every night until three o'clock in the morning, I was talking to people literally they were adamant about wanting to kill themselves and so they're talking about their anguish and i remember um i was burnt and the same thing you were talking about it's day in day out one thing after another after another and it's at one point i really needed to see how i needed to take care of myself and sometimes bring your head out of the misery and suffering and breathe and then go back and it's the yeah. same thing we tell you know we tell our patients or clients that yes they are in actual suffering but sometimes can they just like bring their head and, and do that because you can either get numb which doesn't help people or nor yourself or be so much in pain that it destroys every organ of your body in a sense. And so it's so hard to sit in a momentum of a continuous um, suffering when you're sitting there. And um, what are your thoughts about that? And what do you suggest, especially in your book about how to handle suffering? Well, one of the things that we say, which you have pointed to is the, the only real failure in burnout and moral distress is going numb. Feeling the pain means you're human. So don't, don't lose that. You know, I think one of the things that is so important, and we talk about this in the book is making the kind of space that you're talking about in the middle of all the uh, crap that's going down. And so uh, I will, encourage people to 
we're in a very tense family meeting. We're trying to decide whether to take somebody off life support. The medical team thinks it's time. The family is not ready. You get all kinds of responses to that. You get angry, you get breakdown, you get people jumping up and running out of the room. Uh, I haven't been attacked in one of those meetings. <clears throat> I've been attacked before, but not in one of those meetings. Um, but what I say to my trainees is, no matter what is going on in that meeting, you can plant your feet flat on the floor, sit, straighten your spine, tip your chin down just a little bit, do some belly breaths, and come into a centered place. You don't have to stop paying attention. You don't have to move anybody out of the way. And I said, if you watch in a meeting, if you see me doing that, then something bad is going on. You need to pay attention or something bad is coming. So the effort to try to make space within no matter what is happening, uh, I think is critical. The other thing is we, the general conversation about qualify it one more time. Much of the general conversation about wellness, responding to moral distress and burnout suggests that once you get home, do X, you know, run, swim, eat great stuff. But you're describing something where you have to go in the bathroom and throw up like immediately. And so the other thing I encourage people to do is look for ways to make on a very particular level your work more to give breathing space so i ask people to look at their physical space are you crowded is there a particular physician who gives you the willies and is there a way you can draw him out into the big room to have a conversation and not in the corner I'm sorry, Dr. So-and-so, I can't hear you very well. Can we move over here? Is there a way you can move the desk so that you can get to the door before the violent client who's in your room? You know, that's a basic safety thing, which I wasn't taught until I got, you know, somebody who closed the door and put his chair down in front of it. And I'm like, boy, they didn't tell me about this in PhD philosophy, you know, school. <laughs> but there are, things that you can do that make the physical space your ally. And I say this over and over again, it's in the particulars that we find the breathing space that allows us to keep moving. Sometimes we think it's a grand, you know, I need to become Swami so-and-so, and then uh, the suffering of these people is not going to affect me. One, you may have a hard time doing that. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not. But the other is um, that's probably not going to help you when you are sitting right in front of a child or a woman who has been through this experience. Part of the reason I like uh, the imagery of field of suffering so much is when you see those people one after another, you come out of one person's field and you go right into the next one. And so all the suffering that surrounds them, all the suffering that they carry in their body and that comes out from their body, as soon as you walk in there, you absorb it. 
and you don't have, you know, what have you got an hour with him? And then you go to the next one. That's one kind of schedule. Well, you got five minutes in between to, oh, you got all the stuff moving in your body. I've heard you talk before about, you know, the body keeps the score and it does and it doesn't forget. So you end up absorbing so much suffering and so many different kinds. I think that's the other thing, you know, you might absorb or be able to handle, you know, 5% in this category and 10% in this category and 10% over here. And then the next person fills in, you know, four other different things and the level and the difficulty of, of overwhelm is considerable. So I think finding things to that can happen while the events are going down uh, is really important. And, you know, whatever you can do for a break, you know, a mantra. Uh, I knew a physician who between rooms, when he would come to the door of the next patient, he would just say a very short prayer, which is, God, don't let me screw this up. <laughs> and, then, and then he would go into the room, but it broke the seriousness, the tone, it reoriented him and it allowed him to, to go in. Yes. Does this help? Absolutely, everyone. Dr. David Chank, uh, the book is Into the Field of Suffering with Scott Neely, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. David, um, one thing that helped me, it, it's also that as I go into this field, to also imagine the strength that these people have. And, you know, whenever I've gone through the suffering, although I've experienced my powerlessness at that moment with what's going on, but there was a tremendous amount of strength, resiliency that was helping me even endure it. I'm not even talking get out of it, just enduring it. And that's one way that I've attempted to keep looking as someone is going through sharing with me their their suffering and also tuning into the strength the patience the resiliency the endurance that they have you know in every angle and how the beauty of the mind strategizes how to survive all of this you know by the meaning we give or shift of ideas or you know is planning to do things i've even worked with you know, dissociative, um, dissociative patients where they've just kind of split off and it's like you know, they took their resilience and like, I'm going, I like that part doesn't even exist. I don't even, you know, it's, I even talk in another, I had one, one woman who spoke in, uh, in regular, like American, let's say California accent. And then suddenly she would shift to this Southern accent completely when she wanted to live her strength. And it was very interesting of how the brain will do whatever it needs to do in order to have us survive. Yeah. And sometimes I just keep looking for that. Part of the re part of the motive for the book or part of the driving energy was my admiration for the strength of uh, my coworkers, my colleagues, what they were able to do in the middle of their struggles with moral distress and burnout, but also what um, the patients were able to do. I mean, and the families, when I worked in the neonatal intensive care, 
watching these young parents who, you know, it's their first child. They have this picture of what their life is going to be. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to open out. And then all of a sudden they have a child with major um, developmental defects. Uh, in many cases, a child will die in three or four days, or we need to make an immediate, immediate decision about uh, removing life support. And so you got these kids, 21, 22, 23, you know, who have a picture of life that is this. And you're not just saying to them, this child is going to die. You're saying the world is such that things like this can happen. Your world is broken. And to watch them take in that immensity and yet, find a way to come back and in many cases handle the death of the child with great beauty and great compassion. Now, the thing about working in the hospital is, I don't know, they go home and then they come see you, right? I, so I don't know that part, but our job in the hospital is like first aid. It's like, let's give them some basic clues and try to hold the space so that they aren't wounded by the hospital or by us anymore. And hopefully that can be something that helps for them when they go out, but watching their courage. Um, I, I mean, one case. So can I go into a case? I'm sort of rambling on here. Uh, but there was a case where, um, white mother, black father, the white family had disappeared. The black family wasn't quite sure what to do. The black grandmother came by briefly and left. The child was dying rapidly uh, and they wanted to, to have the child baptized. We called the chaplaincy office and they said the chaplain can be there in six hours. <laughs> so I said to the young woman, I said, you know, the church I grew up in, Anybody can baptize. And she said, well, that's my church too. And I said, okay, we're going to baptize this baby. So I asked the nurse, you know, can I have some water? And she says, what kind of water? Thinking, you know, sterile, whatever, like water, <laughs> anything. And so the woman and I are holding the baby. I've got the water. And the husband puts his hand on top of our hands. And he intertwines his fingers in my fingers. So we have this black, white, and then my big old hand and the baby together. It's beautiful. And they're there completely. And then a nurse brings in a bed and they lie. Really, it was a heart shape. I mean, it was almost corny, except it was so beautiful and not intentional. But one parent on one side of the bed, one on the other, and the baby's in the middle. And they are like that until the child dies. These are kids. They're kids. So the kind of strength that flows through is uh, remarkable and it gives you courage. You know, you see these cases one after another and it's a blow after a blow. And then you watch something like that and it's like, oh, yeah, this is also human being. Yes. Yes. You talk about learning and transformation for obviously people who. Have survived the suffering of losing people um 
or even, you know, uh, a person who's suffering from an illness. There have been so many people who I've experienced where they got, um, you know, they were diagnosed with cancer and they changed all the, the whole lifestyle. And they said, you know, I wish it didn't happen and I wish I'd got my learning another way, but it's sometimes like the best thing that ever happened to me and knocks me by a two by four telling me you got to change your life. Yeah. And so there's a lot that a lot of learning and transformation happens through the suffering. Uh, but also not only for the person who's going through the suffering, but for people who are also the caregivers or people who are part of another person's suffering, it becomes also a huge, huge learning for us and transformation. Can you share a little bit about that? First thing that comes to mind is an AIDS patient that I worked with some in Washington, D.C. And at one point he said, you know, doc, if it weren't for AIDS, I'd be dead. You know, it's like, okay, wait a minute. But he had been living on the street. He had had addiction problems, all these different things. And because of AIDS and the regimes around the medicine and the support that he got, a real community drawing him forward, he he lived for weeks, if not months, longer than he would have on the street. So there was a a wake-up call for him, which can then serve as a wake-up call. Um, I think this is one of the power, part of the power of working for hospice, you know, either as a volunteer or as a healthcare person or as a therapist. Uh, you watch people as they move into their last days and their last hours and they're dying. And we see some courage, we see some learning, uh, we see people who fall apart, but in every case, there's kind of a, you know, inscribing on your head, which is, I will die one day. Am I paying enough attention? Who am I spending time with? Why am I doing, you know, why did I agree to do that stupid thing when I ought to be doing this? Uh, so the, the, Learning occurs in so many ways. And, and one thing that, that we do say in the book is there's always something to learn. And if you can be in the learning mode, it helps you break out of the depression, the darkness. There's a wonderful thing in the Once and Future King where uh, Merlin is talking to, you know, little King Arthur and he's like, Whenever you feel bad, whenever you feel down, learn something. And it's actually incredibly profound. The other thing I think is, is kind of an antidote for this uh, kind of difficulty is gratitude. Uh, it's very hard to be, I'm sure we could do it if we tried, but it's hard to be down depressed, turned in on yourself in that dark place when you're being gratitude, when you're offering the world gratitude and you're recognizing, you know, my coworker, this friend who came to see me, this person who tried to help me, they really made me angry, but they tried. I'm grateful for the fact that they tried. And so I recommend a practice of gratitude. And, you know, I've given people the example of, oh, you're doing a code in the hospital what could you possibly be grateful for? Well, you're grateful for the guy right next to you who's, you know, pounding on the chest while you do this or who 
you know, he takes it and then you take it, uh, or the surgeon who shows up to help you in the process or whatever there's in it's maybe some terrible torture situation where you couldn't come up with something to be grateful for, but almost all the time there's some peace and often that's all it takes to turn you loose from the prison and the story. I've heard you talk about this, the story that you're telling yourself, this is awful. I'm awful. This is miserable. Oh, wait, Dr. Hagen, he's here. I'm so glad he's here. He may not be able to do anything, but I'm grateful that he showed up. Yes. Um, we were talking about the uh, enmeshment and uh, are kind of like the signs of uh, how we become. I remember my I was working with a client who's had an addiction to opioids for almost the 10 years and she's grown a lot she's you know uh, quit relapse quit relapse but she's every time she she quits she also has a deep deep you know clinical depression so she goes all the way to the extreme concept of you know suicidal thoughts and then you know then she relapses and then so there's a cycle every time it's getting better but one time I remember, David, I, we were going on a trip with my husband on a road trip, and I just started crying. And he keeps looking at me like, is everything going, is everything okay? I'm like, yes, and I have no idea why I'm crying. I just have the sadness that is bubbling up. So he kept saying, are you sure, are you sure? I'm like, it's not me, it's, you know, I could go, and then we went through every angle of our life like this, check mark, check mark, check mark, all angle of my life is great, like the gratitude you were talking about. But this thing is just bubbling up and I can't, I have no idea what it is. And I just like bawling. Fast forward around 5 p.m. I get a text from this client. I need to talk to you. I know you're on a trip, but I need to talk to you. So I call her and she says, I've been contemplating suicide all day. And, um, and then I just, for the last minute, I have all the pills. I have everything here. And I just figured I owe you. I needed to call you. And then I got it that all of those hours, it was this connection with her emotion that were just running through me. And I was so connected with this person that without even being in the same physical space, I was getting her vibe and I was just crying for her. And this concept of just being and, you know, like I allowed myself to be who, you know, the connection and we just kind of crying and all of that. And then we went like, you we, exactly what you said, we went into the gratefulness and the gratitude and all that was coming up. And we went, you know, talked about her, her son, who uh, it was so wonderful for her to have the son. And then I asked her if I could call her son to come and see her, um, to be with her. So, you know, so yeah. that she could take care. And he said, she said, yes. Um, so they got connected and they got connected in a whole different level uh, mm -hmm. that day with her son that ever before that connection was there. Um, but it also gave me the concept of there's a beauty in that connection when it's that deep. Yeah. And yet, you know, um, where is it that I needed to know how to be separate with the person? 
And going okay. back and forth between the balance of allowing yourself to completely be connected, feel it, experience it, be with someone with compassion, and then coming out and being who you are, because you know that's not my suffering, that's someone else's suffering, coming back out and having my own space. Yeah. And tell me, what are your thoughts and experiences? Well, the the experience of the empathetic, just direct connection where, yeah, I feel bad and I'm wondering what's going on. And then, yes, I get a call or I, you know, somebody's been through something, there's been an accident, you, you know, that that kind of thing. I mean, I just sent an email to a former student who I hadn't thought about in years, and then she was on my mind for two weeks in a row. And I I have to send, now I haven't heard back, so she's either <laughs> dead or fine, but the need to respond to that. But so one thing that I have puzzled about a lot and have tried to explore is, uh, we talked in the book about the difference between sympathy and empathy, which I'm sure you've talked about, and then the distinction between empathy and presence. And by presence, I mean, in significant part, not abandoning. So you enter the field of suffering of the patient, and part of what you're doing is saying, I'm going to be here. This field is difficult. It's difficult for you. I'm sitting in it, standing in it. It's difficult for me. But part of what's going to turn this field of suffering into the field of healing is I stay here. I, I hold here. But if in that field of suffering you are permeated by it with the empathy that is your gift, my gift, um, then it can be very, it can be impossible to stay there. But I think there's also something in between backing up and being uh, so connected, which which I try to describe as presence, which is pulling back some of the direct emotional connection, you know, like turning down the volume, you, uh, the tap in the stove, uh, the tub, you know, but you're not leaving the person. You're still physically in front of them. You're still paying complete, you know, like you're looking at me now like you would look at a client. You're completely attentive. Uh, you know what the body language is. You're tuned in, but you're not directly emotionally connected. And then the ability to come back, because that direct connection is part of what, uh, that's why the person trusts you in, in significant part. Or it allows you insight so that the next thing that you're able to say to the person, they're surprised that you're so <clears throat> close to where they are. And that's the empathy. But the presence, and I'm, you know, I'm still learning about this and trying to find a way to describe it, is not abandoning and not withdrawing, but altering the way that you are in front and occupying. Uh, and I think it's a very difficult um, thing to do. And 
I think it connects to, for me and for many people, it connects to having a breathing practice or a meditation practice. And so you basically you shift into that mode of attentiveness that you have when you're doing your breathing practice. So you're not abandoning, um, you're centered, you're there, you can stay there. And then once you feel that you're balanced and ready to offer something again, then you can move forward. Absolutely. Dr. David Shank, everyone, with Scott Mealy, Into the Field of Suffering is the book, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. Um, can I say something about that cover? Yes. That painting on the cover is Scott's painting, mm -hmm. uh, the fire circle. And uh, so the picture of the suffering circle, entering the suffering circle, the Buddha talking about life as fire and the house on fire, all of that went into there. And Oxford was very generous in allowing us basically to do the fundamental design of the cover. Now they had some great design people who adjusted the color, changed the font, the whole, you know, the technical stuff. But I love it that it's Scott's painting and that it represents what we were trying to bring forward. And also just to plug Oxford, they did a great job uh, with, with the cover. Beautiful. Anything we haven't said? that you needed um, our audience and viewers to really know about you, your work, the book? Well, caregiving is universal. All of us are going to do it. All of us have probably done it. And I think the thing I, I want to say about it is appreciate yourself. Acknowledge that you are willing to show up, even if you feel like you're fail failing. Even if you are so tired, you're stumbling around, you may be grousing at your patient. I mean, I, you know, I've said to a couple of people, I know you're dying. I don't care if you're dying or not. Never say that to me again. And, you know, you don't do that very often. That's very advanced. Huh? But appreciate yourself. Be good to yourself uh, because your willingness to bring compassion directly in contact with suffering this is the mystery and the miracle of human being it's what we can do yes i've said that to my friends not to my clients that um but to my friends at times when they're talking about this it's like no 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 you don't make that decision i'll make it for you i'm not ready for that when i'm ready i'll let you know when you can die so we laugh about it a little bit like right. as if i can be in control um but I've been talking to many of uh, many of my friends and my colleagues who their uh, parents are, um, you know, have been diagnosed with dementia, Alzheimer's, and they're kind of losing them, living with them, they're losing them. And yeah. that has become one of the biggest suffering and being a caregiver for a parent, it has its own cycles and what you have to go through. Um, you know, yeah, you, the image of who you knew as a parent has to shift. You have to let go of, you know, kind of like suddenly becoming the caregiver where you always wanted them, you know, the fantasy of a part of me can always be a child and I will always have a parent to take care of me shatters. 
and sometimes just the you know the suffering of losing the person who is inside and you know you can't connect and when they no longer even remember who you are and you know you kind of go through your grief step at a time and frustrations and anger and you know sadness and empathy so you know my hats off to every single human being who out there is a caregiver whether they're you know a parent of a child or uh, you know, a, a child of a parent or anyone or in the, in the field of, of caring and being a provider of care for, for anyone in the world. So um, thank you, everybody, for doing that. And, That's you know, thank absolutely. you for writing the book um, with your colleague and, and sharing your views with us. I appreciate it. I have enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Um, and I hope that you'll come back and uh, share more. At the, That'd be the terrific. Be terrific. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing world for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye. Break free from the forces holding you back. Get the life you deserve. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, decrease depression, and start living your full potential. Thousands have used Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory, an evidence-based behavioral health breakthrough with incredible life-changing results. Getting rid of past trauma, having fulfilling relationships, increasing earnings, and living their best life. Now, the Fujian app is available to everyone. The app is Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory in the palm of your hand. Download the Fujian app today.